Good evening, everyone. Um, welcome back. It's been a long time, hasn't it? If you got a nap. Um, well, it's great to be back this evening. We're going to continue to look at what we looked at this morning and just a, a, a real brief recap of one of the things we said this morning. If you were here with us, I mentioned that, the, that really the, the kind of the two main application points, the two main so what's of the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, the sermon really originally to the Hebrews were these, draw near and hold fast. And both of those come to us as expressions that are supposed to be manifest in our life in prayer as a means of grace from the ministries we saw of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. This morning, if you were with us, we looked at drawing near, this evening now, holding fast. Turn your attention now back to the same passage in Hebrews. We'll join that with a passage from Mark's gospel describing Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane to which this Hebrews passage gives a nod. So I'd ask you once again to stand for the reading of God's holy word. Hebrews chapter four, verses 14 through 5, 10, and then Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 38. This is God's word. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins, he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weaknesses. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for the, those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 38. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. 
And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, it is a privilege to be able to be regathered in your name this evening to study your word together. And as we've already heard, we pray that your word would have effect upon us, O oh Lord, that, um, that we would know more of the life of your son, we would enjoy that life, we would be challenged in it, and Father, that you would help us to pray as he taught us to pray. We pray in his name, amen. So I want to start tonight with a metaphor, um, it may be familiar to you, it's one that Tim Keller has used, others have used it too, so it's not incredibly unique to him, but it's, it's helped me at least think about the Christian life, by the way, of which prayer tends to be the thermometer. So the metaphor goes like this, um, imagine your soul is a boat, and that boat has oars, and that boat has a sail. Here are four categories to think about where you are. Now, even before I introduce these categories, here's your disclaimer. This is not about maturity necessarily. This is about your experience of faith currently. And those things are not always the same thing, okay? The first category is this. Here's the first question. The metaphor is your soul's a boat, you have sails, and you have oars. The first category is, are you sailing? Are you sailing? So sailing would mean that you are living the Christian life, you're experiencing the Christian life with the wind at your back. Uh, God is real to your heart, you feel his face shining upon you, his love warms you, serving him right now is energizing for you, and likely on this scenario, um, prayer really is a delight. So maybe the nearness that we talked about this morning, that is not abstract, it is experiential. Are you sailing? Second category, are you rowing? Rowing would mean that you are really working hard. You're working hard to apply the means of grace to moving forward, to growing in the Christian life. But in this scenario, prayer would often seem more like a discipline or a duty than a delight, as would the other disciplines in the Christian life. Going to church, worship, Bible reading, everyday obedience. But here's the thing, you're doing it even though all the feels aren't there, you're doing it. By the way, it's important, I think, just to say this. Um, at this point, the gospel, as you've probably heard over and over again in your life, the gospel is opposed to earning. It is not opposed to effort, okay? Effort is required. Are you rowing? Third category, are you drifting? Drifting would mean that you're experiencing all the conditions of rowing, that is spiritual dryness and struggles in your life, but instead of working, you're kind of letting yourself drift. You're not praying much, not trying to read the Bible. You might even find yourself mired in self-pity and sliding into patterns of behaviors that you're ashamed of, maybe hiding, in order to escape the emptiness. So in this category, not only are all the feels gone, but the effort is missing as well. Are you drifting? Final category, are you sinking? Has your soul drifted for so long that numbness has finally given away to hardness? 
maybe even resentment, and you've really lost any sense of forward motion in the Christian life at all. And what often, often happens in this place, you find yourself at least considering leaving the faith altogether and giving up. Are you sinking? This is by no means a perfect metaphor, but here's one reason I find it helpful. It reminds us that there are some things in the Christian life for which we are responsible, such as the means of grace, prayer, reading our Bibles, showing up for church, worship. We are responsible for applying those disciplines to our life no matter our circumstances, that is, no matter the weather. The metaphor also reminds us that there are other things in our lives for which we don't have much control at all, which is how well our circumstances are going. For some of us, it's our temperaments, our feelings, our experiences, things like that. And then in the metaphor, there is, of course, the question of the wind itself. We have absolutely no control, no authority over the wind, over the spirit. You have no control over when God's spirit will come and blow the sail and stir faith and warm your heart. That metaphor is not irrelevant to the book of Hebrews because remember, he's a pastor. The pastor in our book, the author, is addressing a congregation in which many of the members are in danger of drifting and sinking. In fact, in chapter two, verse one, he writes this, therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. And friends, if you've ever studied or if you've read this book at all, then you also know that Hebrews has the most vivid and serious warnings against apostasy, against leaving the faith, against sinking, compared with any other book in the New Testament. If the Psalms are any indicator, much of how most of us will experience the Christian life will not be sailing. Sometimes it will be, but for most of us, the Christian life will be wanting to sail, but having to row instead. And here's what I wanna get across when it comes to prayer as a grace tonight. There is no magic way to get you sailing. There is no magic formula to keep you sailing all the time for prayer to become a continual delight. But we can all become rowers. We all should become rowers. We can all pray in spite of the struggle and not be content to drift, but readying ourselves for that moment when the wind does pick up and God returns to us the experience, as David said in Psalm 51, of the joy of our salvation. C.S. Lewis puts it like this, he says that the Christian life is sort of like digging channels in a waterless land. That's what you wanted to hear, right? That's what you came to hear. You dig those channels in the waterless land so that when the water does come, when the wind picks up, the channels are deep. And your heart is ready and the refreshment better than you imagined. So what encouragement do we have to keep rowing? How does prayer help us not only to draw near to God, but hold on to him in the midst of the struggle? And two things I want to look at tonight. First of all, we're going to look, this is going to happen every time, we're going to look at our high priest, our great high priest, Jesus himself, what encouragement we find in him and from him and through him. We're going to call this first point the hold that Jesus has on us. And then second, I want us to look at how to pray in light of who Jesus is. 
that his prayer is a grace to strengthen the hold that we have on him. Jesus' hold on us, the hold, the, the, the idea of strengthening the hold that we have on him. Let's look at those two things in turn tonight. Put your eyes on the text. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10 for a moment. We touched on this this morning. I want to spend more time um, tonight on the high priesthood of Jesus. Just think, you only get two sermons on it. They, like the next six chapters, it's the whole book. So if we were going through it, you'd hear this a lot more. Um, tonight, what made a high priest? What qualified him for that office? What was a high priest supposed to do? Three things we learn here in our passage that will help us understand Jesus' own ministry and love for us. First, verse 1. The function of the high priest, as we said earlier this morning, was to make atonement for sin. Perhaps this is the most important thing you can hear. A high priest, as it says, as the writer says, was appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And the lesson is this. You and I cannot come into the presence of God as sinners. And not only that, we can't remove the guilt of our sin by ourselves. Someone must be appointed by God to do that on our behalf. The high priest was that someone. So remember what we said this morning, without atonement, without atonement, there is no nearness. Second, what else has to be true of the high priest? Verse two, the high priest must deal gently with God's people with the ignorant and the wayward. That's us, by the way. We're in that category. And notice that he is called to do that, I think you'll love this part, out of his own weakness. So we saw that again this morning, that a high priest not only ministers out of his high office, he ministers to us out of his lowliness, his own struggle, his own need. From that, he's able to deal gently with sinners. Third, verse four. A high priest had to be appointed by God to that office. The high priesthood was not a popular vote. It wasn't a popularity contest. It was always a gift from God to his people by his appointment and not the other way around. So if you're following verses one through 10, the rest of the passage is how Jesus meets those expectations in an exemplary, supreme way as your high priest, and the author does that for you now in reverse order. First of all, is Jesus called by God? Verses five through six. It makes very plain that Jesus did not exalt himself to that office. I'm sure he could have in some way, but he was appointed instead by the word of God speaking prophetically through the psalmist. The writer wants you to know that Jesus really is God's appointed gift for you. Second, can he deal gently with us? We looked at that this morning, but you should never tire of hearing it. Jesus ministers to you. He loves you, not only out of his exaltation, but out of his lowliness. Look at verses seven through eight. These are some of the most descriptive verses in the entire New Testament regarding the humanity of Jesus. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. There's his prayer life. With loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, Jesus learned obedience how? Through what he suffered. Question I ask you from this passage is, did Jesus ever know what it felt like not to be sailing, but to only be rowing? And to have to pray as a discipline and even to obey when the presence of God seemed far off? You think Jesus was ever tempted to give up? 
So friends, I don't know how you could read the temptations in the desert or the struggle we just read in Gethsemane and think that Jesus does not understand the struggle to pray in the face of enormous temptation, an enormous crisis. And God appointed Jesus to be your high priest, and he appointed him to learn obedience through suffering. Why did he do that? So that he could deal gently with you. Do you see that? In prayer, you can always say, Lord, this is hard. I am struggling. I am tired. I am weary. I don't have the words. And you can know that Jesus, your high priest, nods in agreement as the one who has been there himself. He can deal gently with you. And finally, the last question is, can Jesus make atonement and effect reconciliation on your behalf? So the whole middle of this book is an articulation of Jesus' sufficiency to do that. But I just want you to see how the pastor puts it here in these few verses. Look at verse 9, first of all. We'll work backwards. Jesus is the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now, how did he become that source? Really important. Verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up. That is sacrificial language. That's the language of sacrifice. That's atonement language. He offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to God. I want you to see this. The pastor here is actually using the language of prayer to communicate the reality of your atonement. Uh, What is prayer? One way to define prayer is prayer is offering ourselves up to God. And the writer here, the author here, says that Jesus offered up himself, that is, his loud cries. Those tears were the heart of Jesus. They were his prayers, which culminated on the cross. And if you know the Gospels and the story of the cross at all, you'll know that Jesus' final words on the cross were almost all prayers. They were loud cries and tears. Now get this, why did God hear them? You see that there? He heard them because of Jesus' reverence. And do you know what that means? It means that in Jesus' own moments of greatest weakness, when he was only rowing, when he was suffering, when he was perhaps even sinking, he always hallowed the Father's name. He always obeyed him in those moments. And that is a wonderful picture of the atonement because it tells you why the atonement matters for your own prayer life. When you pray, no matter the condition of your own soul, what assurance do you have that God hears you? What assurance do you have that God loves you, that he will never leave you nor forsake you? Let me tell you what you don't have. You don't have your own feelings. Let me tell you what else you don't have. You do not have your own reverence. You have instead the reverence of Jesus, the Son, that has been applied on your behalf. Do you see that? God hears you because of the reverence of his Son. Let me give you another image that comes from Hebrews 2. No no doubt, one of the things that we struggle with, maybe this is just me. Let's just put me on the spot then. And prayer is shame. And you know this about how how shame functions in relationships, but shame is a barrier to any relationship. It's a barrier to any kind of closeness. Usually, the first experience that I have in prayer is shame. 
It is difficult for me to pray at times because when I begin, I'm always aware that I have not prayed enough. And then all of that enoughness from other parts of my life just comes washing over me in that moment and I just feel like I'm an imposter. I don't belong. I wear a robe on Sundays and God is ashamed of me. You know what Hebrews 2.11 says? It's not on your passage, but here's what it says. Remember, I just want to remember, this is to a congregation who is far less than the paragon of faithfulness. In 2.11, the pastor says that Jesus stands up in the congregation, in that congregation publicly, and he says he is not ashamed to call you his brother. The faithful one stands up publicly, and he points at those whose faithfulness is very much in question. And he says, I am not ashamed to be connected with you as an older brother. If you had older siblings, you know that's rare. Jesus stands up as your older brother. He says, I am not ashamed of you. Do you see that, friends? It is his reverence, it is his gentleness, it is his appointment as a high priest that always determines God's way with you. And his love is always stronger than your shame. And his hold on you is always stronger than your own hold on him. And so what does that mean for prayer? And specifically, how do we row as a means of grace to hold fast to Jesus when we don't want to? Let me say three things tonight, three things for you to take home. My hope is that these will be somewhat practical. I struggle with that, admittedly, but hopefully these will be practical for you. The first is this, would you remember this? That when you pray, that when you live as a Christian, you always have the assurance of gentleness from God. Always. Listen to me, if God would appoint a priest who was called to be gentle with you, then that means God is also gentle. He would never appoint someone to undermine his own character. Remember that. God's heart is never not gentle, even when he seems distant. And you can come to him with your emptiness and rely upon the promise that he will deal gently with you. Second thing to take home. Your obedience in prayer matters. Your obedience in prayer matters. Remember what we learned here about Jesus. Jesus was a son. Jesus was the son. And what that tells us is that Jesus' relationship with the Father was never uh, at stake, it was never in question, it was never an issue. And yet for all of that, how did Jesus the Son learn obedience? Through what he endured as suffering. Later in the letter, the pastor says this, Hebrews 12, 3. He says, consider him, that is Jesus, who endured in the face of suffering so that you might not grow weary or faint-hearted. And then the pastor quotes Proverbs 3.11, which I can assure you is going to be no one's favorite verse. He says this, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines who? Those he loves. And he chastises every son whom he receives. And the way that the, the pastor talks about it here is that suffering is never the proof of the absence of God for God's people. It is always the proof of your sonship. 
Because the pastor reasons no father, no father would refuse or withhold discipline for his child unless he was a bad father, unless he was an absentee father. And I tell you that tonight knowing that that is not easy to preach, it is not easy to hear, it is not easy to believe, especially if you are in the middle of suffering. But what it does tell you is that struggling obediently in prayer, just as it was in the life of Jesus, that is God's means to grow in you a deeper love for and likeness unto him. Your obedience and prayer matters. Friends, God cares. God cares. Finally, and I'd be remiss if if in in a, you know, three whatever sermons on prayer, we didn't at least acknowledge this. That is the Psalms. Uh, The words that we need to express our struggle with God, to pray. The words we need to form in us faithfulness in the midst of suffering itself. That is the words for your weariness and emptiness and doubt and frustration and feelings of God forsakenness. God has already given you those words in the Psalms. I love to point this out. By far the largest category in the Psalms is the category of lament. So 40% of the Psalms are Psalms of sorrow or Psalms of lament. That's about 60 out of 150, which tells you that drifting and rowing and struggling really is a normative experience for the people of God. Where did Jesus find the words to pray? In his own moments of greatest trial, and suffering. He found those words in the Psalms. Friends, the Psalms is the book book that Jesus quoted more than any other book in the Bible. Read the Psalms, get to know the Psalms, and you will get to know Jesus. And here's one really important thing to note about why prayer is a grace in these really hard seasons. It's a grace because you don't have to like come up with your own words. You don't even have to generate your own words. You can just read the words that God has already given for you to pray. And you can just voice those back to him. For example, you can turn to Psalm 13 and say, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Or you can turn to Psalm 22 like Jesus did and you can say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I cry by day, but you don't answer. And in the night, my soul finds no rest. You can turn to Psalm 73 and say, Lord, I have been envious of the arrogant, and in vain have I kept my heart clean. And when I turned and tried to understand the prosperity of the wicked, how easy they have it, behold, understanding your justice and your ways in the world, that was a wearisome task. At the same time, you can turn to Psalm 33. And lots of other psalms like it, and you can find words in the psalms that are far beyond what you could ever bring out of your own heart, words that keep you rowing in the face of enormous struggle and trial. My soul waits for the Lord. Or you could pray it like this. Lord, help my soul to wait for you. You are my help and my shield. Make my soul, make my heart glad in you because I long to trust in your holy name. Let your steadfast love be upon me even as I hope in you. And all I want you to see tonight, guys, is that God has done all the work for you. And that's the definition of grace. He never meets you halfway. He always comes all the way. 
so that everything God requires of you, he always provides. Think about it. Do you need a high priest who can atone for your sin and cover your shame? Do you need the assurance that God understands you? That he can sympathize with you in your weakness and he can deal gently with you in your waywardness? Do you need the words to pray when you don't have the strength to form those words yourself? Do you need God's spirit to remind you in seasons of doubt, to testify to your own heart that you can come near to him and even call him Abba Father? Romans 8, do you need that spirit to groan for you? When you don't even have the words to form yourself, it's too hard and you don't know what to pray, do you need a throne of grace? Do you need again a lap of a father? Do you see that God has provided more than we would ever think to ask or imagine for every moment and every season that we find ourselves in this weary world? And so prayer is coming to him as you are because of the goodness of your high priest and what will we find there? What does John tell us? Grace upon grace upon grace. So friends, I'd urge you tonight to hold fast and to keep rowing because I can promise you, um, by God's own testimony, the wind will blow again. It will blow again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you that he serves as our priest who deals gently with us. He also serves as a model for what it looks like to struggle in the world that we find ourselves. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you've given everything that you require. We pray, oh Lord, that you would stir faith in us. We would just say as a prayer that we would long to be sailing all the time. We also pray, Lord, in seasons of discipline, and sadness and trial that you would do what your word tells us you will do and that is form obedience in us. That you would help us to dig channels as if in a waterless land so that when the water finally comes, our hearts will be ready. And praise in Jesus' name, amen.